Well, let's turn back to the passage that we read from Philippians chapter 3 um, and uh, the second half of that chapter, especially that we will be looking at the, the chapter as a whole, um, where, <clears throat> where Paul says in, in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I, made, I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind And straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind, I press on. Thought it appropriate on this anniversary Sunday, uh, looking back over such a a significant chunk of history, uh, church history in this church. Um, over so many years uh, that we should spend this morning, as we did, as it were, looking back, uh, looking back to our roots, uh, remembering who we are as the people of God and why we are here, why has God placed us here, not just this present generation, but those who have preceded you, uh, that we need that sense of our roots and our identity and our calling as the people of God. Uh, that we are not to become what has so often been the case, sadly, in uh, evangelical churches in recent times, uh, effectively to become evangelical monasteries, uh, where we retreat into our little church communities in much the same way as our unbelieving neighbors retreat into their golf clubs and their, uh, their various societies and organizations to which they belong and where they have a, a circle of friends who are their support network, Um, And they retreat in there. And sometimes this is just the Christian alternative. Um, In America, they used to uh, regard the country club as as the place where people would find a niche for themselves and a community to which they were a part. But all too often, churches became nothing more than evangelical country clubs. Um, And that is not what we were meant to be. Uh, That is, we are reminded of where we've come from why we have been called by God into his family, that it is for a purpose that we might be a light unto the nations. That's why we sang from Psalm 67. Uh, The the, the psalmist daring to pray, Lord, bless and pity us, shine on us in your grace, that nations all may catch a glimpse of his wonder and his grace. And and so it is that it's, it's as God works here, in the midst of his people, young and old alike, and sends us forth into the world in which he's placed us, the communities to which we belong, the schools to which we go, that he is equipping us as his saints in this place to serve him out there in that place, that we are to go with the gospel day by day, week by week, and we are to persevere as your forebearers persevered in their witness to the community, seeing the gospel doing its work by the Spirit in the communities from which we come. And, 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 and we need to be encouraged for, about the future. Uh, we need to think about not only the way ahead, but how we proceed into the way ahead in the years and the decades and perhaps even the centuries that lie ahead in the history of this congregation of which you're a part. You, brothers and sisters, have been handed the torch of truth uh, and of witness by those who have gone before you and you're to hand it on to the next generation. So boys and girls, if, if you're here this evening and, and you uh, don't 
get anything else from what I say this evening, get this, that you are the next generation um, who will carry on from where your parents left off, that what you've seen them be involved in and accomplish under God, uh, it will fall to you uh, to carry on as those who lead, as those who witness, as those who are involved in the labors of this congregation for the next phase of its history. But of course, if we're going to press on into the future, we need a clear sense of direction. As somebody has rightly says, if you aim at nothing, you're guaranteed to hit it. And and too often as the people of God, we have aimed at nothing in particular. We haven't been conscious of the direction in which we are meant to be traveling, the goals for which we are to be striving. And yet they are there. We're given clear direction. The very last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples prior to his ascension at the end of Matthew's gospel there are the words of the Great Commission, the marching orders for the church. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, he says. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And and that that once-for-all apostolic commission, yes, it was given first and foremost to the the apostles, the the eleven as they then were, but were to become twelve again with the addition of Matthias in, in the early chapters of Acts. That's with that apostolic testimony entrusted to the church through the ages, we are to go forth, not, not, not proclaiming a gospel of our own imagination, but handing on the sacred tradition of the truths that were committed to those men who were the eyewitnesses of the majesty and of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we are to proclaim as the saving message of the gospel to the world in which we live. And and so here, in the experience of the Apostle Paul, um, he was very conscious of how easy it is for us to become distracted. Distracted with good things, but often being so fixated with the good that we lose sight of the best. That we can be involved in things that are commendable, but we fail to achieve that which is excellent. And it's excellence that we are called to strive for and aim for in our service in the church and for the extension of God's kingdom. And that's why Paul is giving us a glimpse of his own personal experience. Here is, here is the, the great missionary apostle, uh, the one who God transformed uh, in the way that he turned his life around to being the, from being the the chief persecutor of the church in the ancient world to being the chief theologian and evangelist of the church in the ancient world. A radical about turn that took place through his conversion there on the, uh, on the road to Damascus. Uh, but God sent him and used him to bring the gospel to the nations, even ultimately to Rome itself. But Paul, for all his ability and all his, his, uh, the blessedness that rested upon his ministry, 
um, he nevertheless was very honest. And you only have to read his testimony there in Romans chapter 7 to speak of the internal struggles that he endured. The goods that I would, I do not do. The evil that I would not do. Those very things I find myself doing. And he describes himself as a wretched man who will deliver me from this body of death. He, he feels his weakness he finds that, that the Christian life is a constant battle, waging war against the world, the flesh, the devil, fighting on three fronts, and, and, and at times coming close to stumbling. And, and it's, it's because of his sense of the struggle on the one hand, but his gospel determination on the other hand, that, that he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain forward to what lies ahead. And he writes to the church in Philippi, a church that had not only been brought under into existence through his witness, albeit in a fledgling state, just a handful of believers in that place, uh, a church that was blessed in, in many ways, uh, a, a church which has often been nicknamed uh, the, or the letter to the church often nicknamed as the epistle of joy, which is perhaps a bit of a misnomer, but nevertheless, he has much to commend in the church in Philippi. And yet for all the blessing and all the encouragement, there was struggle and there was disappointment. And, and I can guarantee uh, that, that even though I don't know very much about, about Newton Ard's Reformed Presbyterian Church, I can guarantee you have had your struggles in the past and you have your struggles at the present time. Because that's true of every church. Because by its very nature, as the household of faith, as the people of God, there is one place that Satan loves to sneak in and wreak havoc, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. And we must always be aware of that and alert to that and know how to respond to that and not allow ourselves to be deflected or deterred when things go wrong for us. Because the devil will not have the last word. Because the Lord will demonstrate, manifesting his strength through our weakness, his wisdom through our foolishness, he will accomplish his purpose and he will build his church and he will glorify his name. But it doesn't take away from the, the wear and tear of the battle on a daily basis. So Paul's desire was to refocus their faith, to refocus their faith on the things that ultimately mattered, the things that were of ultimate priority in the life of every congregation and for every believer. And it's summed up in the, in the prayer that he offers for them in chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. As always, um, Paul prays at the beginning of his Letters. He, he gives you a kind of summary of what he's going to teach in his letters by praying through it. I had a, 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 a professor, a theology professor in seminary, um, and, and he would pray at the beginning of his class. And he would often spend 10 minutes praying at the beginning of his class. And, and we very quickly realized it wasn't to, to, um, to use up 10 minutes of the 60 minutes that were allotted for teaching time. But rather, he would pray through everything he was going to teach us in the 50 minutes that remained. And if you listened to his prayer, you got an overview of the lecture, and you had an appreciation of the spiritual dimensions of what we were about to receive. 
And that's exactly what the apostle does. And and so in Philippians, he he prays in chapter 1 and verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So that's what's before us this evening. And I'm sure what, what Paul was saying to the Philippians is, is every bit as relevant to you here this evening as a church as it is to, to every congregation that turns to this particular passage. But therein lies the challenge for many of us in the Christian life. The, the pursuit of the good can rob us of the experience of what is best. What is most important? So Paul identifies three things that will keep our faith both focused and on track as we chart our way into what lies ahead. So let's look through them quickly as in the time remaining. First of all, in, in verses 12 to 16, he, he focuses on the goal that we're called to pursue. The goal that we are called as God's people to pursue in our life of faith and service. The section begins with a a reference to what Paul has been saying in the the preceding verses, things that used to matter to him in his former life and being set against over what mattered to him most of all now in his newfound Christian life. He he speaks uh, about having confidence in the flesh He speaks about having been circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's what mattered to him in his former life. It was very religious. It it brought him many admirers. He was seen as one of the up-and-coming stars of the Pharisee, the, the, the party of the Pharisees. He was the future of the Pharisees. So what, what he was presenting in his life was admirable in many ways. He was morally upright. He was very religious. Um, he set a very, a very high bar in terms of religious commitment. But what does Paul say about it, looking back from his vantage point? of where he now is as one who is trusting in Christ alone for his salvation and for his life. He says, I I count all of that as dung, as the authorized version rendered it. But even that rendition um, for the actual Greek that Paul uses at that point is is very coy and circumspect. Paul is, is, is using the kind of language here Uh, that would make a congregation shift uncomfortably in their seats. It is unspeakable rubbish, is the way he regards everything he was and stood for. In his religious life, outside of Christ, it was worthless in the extreme. But then he goes on to speak about his newfound goal that shaped and charted his life that lay ahead of him. And so he spells it out there in verse 7 onwards. He says, whatever gain I had, I count as less for the, as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as, there's the word, rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. You notice the, the, the priority there. We might think, yes, Paul is, it will reach for the resurrection. I want his resurrection power. That, that's how I want to enter into this communion with Christ that is mine in salvation. But no, he says, I want to become like him in his death, sharing in his sufferings. That, that, that it's, the, it's the, the whole composite of being united with Christ, not only in his triumph, but in his torment. And, and it's one of the features of the Christian life that we so often overlook, that if we become followers of our Lord and Savior, uh, then it means not only receiving the benefits of his salvation, but it means taking up our cross and following after him and denying ourselves on a daily basis. It's not hidden in the, in the small print. It's there writ large on the invitation to come to Christ. If anyone would follow after me, said Jesus, let him or her deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow after me each day. To share in my glory, you must enter into my sufferings. Not in any sense that our sufferings have redemptive value, That belongs to Christ alone. He alone could make atonement that was needed to deliver us from sin and death and hell. But rather that through our sufferings we learn obedience. That was true for the incarnate Christ. And through our sufferings we are shaped and molded. The dross of our sinfulness is burned away. And the gold and precious metal of our new life is purified in order that we might be more Christ-like and better equipped for his service. There's a a real sense whenever whenever we begin to get this perspective that we can say with Paul, not that I have yet obtained this. That's the deepest longing of my heart, but I'm not there yet. And, and, And Paul is simply stating something that I think probably all of us who are Christians in this building have experienced at some point or other along the way, that whenever we come to faith, uh, somewhere in our heads we think, if if I become a Christian, then then I will be blessed, uh, and and I will be the happiest person on this earth. But actually to become a Christian makes you, in one sense, the most discontented person in the universe. Because you begin to realize more than ever, things are not what they ought to be in my life. That the deepest longings of my heart have not yet been satisfied and fulfilled. Why? Because we live in a fallen world and something of that fallen world lives on in us. That even though we have been given a new heart in Christ, a new life through his spirit, a new direction through his word. Yet nevertheless, as Paul says, there is sin that still indwells me. I hate it. I wrestle with it. 
I long to be delivered, but that final deliverance from indwelling sin comes on the day of our release from this body and we are taken into the perfection of the glory awaiting Christ's return and our resurrection. So we shouldn't be surprised, brothers and sisters, that if we find ourselves struggling with a holy discontent. I'm not what I once was, but I'm not yet what I ought to be. And and that's a healthy sign of a genuine Christian experience. But the apostle in no sense uh, allies this either to paralyze him or discourage him. Instead, he says, as we read at the beginning, um, um, uh, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ himself. The greatest incentive to press on, to keep going in this new direction is the fact that it's a God-given goal in which God himself is involved. There's a glorious verse back there in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 11 and and, verse 12 where he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You know, this, this call to progress in the life of the faith is not only from God challenging us to follow, but it involves God because it is God himself who is at work in us to will and to do according to his own good pleasure. Straight away, that highlights where and why so many of us lose our way, uh, because we pursue quote-unquote Christian goals of our own making and through our own strength, that, that we are actually looking inward and downward rather than outward and upward as we pursue the goal, the calling that has been set before us by God. Because as we listen to the voice of God, there is actually power in his spoken word that captures our, our leaden hearts to enliven them and to animate them and bends our stubborn wills that we might walk in his will rather than languish in our own will. That in the act of hearing the word of God, The Spirit of God is working to enable us to respond. If you're here this evening not yet a believer, there is a compulsion in the gospel that comes home to you that that commands you to repent and turn to Christ for your salvation. For each of us as those who are believers but stubborn and wayward and self-centered, there's a word that comes to call us to look out from ourselves and up to our God with obedience in our faith. An obedience that manifests that our faith is not in ourselves or what this world offers, but in him and what Christ alone provides. So when he goes on to speak about forgetting what is behind and straining forward and pressing on, he's not speaking about forgetting 
in the sense of disregarding his past life as though it was of no consequence, but rather uh, he, he speaks about putting behind him not only his past failures, which is obvious, but putting behind him his past achievements. You know, we all know the expression, resting on our laurels. It's easy to look back and quietly rub our lapels and say, well, I've done a pretty good job so far. But when you look closely or listen to your wife, you realize actually it's not as good as you think it is. That, that actually there's, there's, there's a lot more improvement needed to begin to get where we ought to be. And, and, and Paul not only wants to forget about his failures, but he wants to forget about his achievements also. Because they are insignificant in comparison to the ultimate achievement of Christ himself. And we can't help but feel the energy pulsing through the language that Paul uses, straining, pressing on. He uses the present continuous tense. This isn't just limbering up at the beginning of the 100-meter sprint. This is in it for the long haul of the marathon and longer still. Unless we think that Paul is simply transferring the energy that he poured into his life as a Pharisee into that of being a Christian, he adds one vital detail. It's the upward call of Christ that keeps him going. It is the voice of his Savior ringing in his ears through his word. The Christ who is the prize for which he strives is the very same Christ in whom he finds both the merit and the strength to press towards the goal. And that was the key to his life and service. It was utterly Christ-centered. Utterly Christ-centered. It's often struck me in, in RP churches, and I see it on the back window of the entrance area there, that the, the, the logo of the RP church is always there for Christ's crown and covenant. And, and, and that is a wonderfully compelling uh, mission statement for what the church is. It's not for us and for our glory. It is not in us and through our merits and our efforts. It is in Christ and for Christ, through his covenant, for his glory and his coming kingdom. So that's the first thing then that Paul wants us to grasp clearly, the goal that we pursue. It is not the next thing on our uh, unfolding in our, our brief life in this world. It is ultimately the call of God and the ushering in of his kingdom through his son for eternity. But he speaks also about the pattern that we follow, verses 17 to 19. Paul goes on to reinforce what he's been saying uh, by pursuing, about pursuing this goal by reference to his own example there in verse 17. He, he states it this way, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The obvious question is, well, hang on, Paul, you've just been saying, um, don't look at me. You've just spoken about how you, you don't revel in your track record or, or your conduct of the past. But what he is saying is, is not that, but he's saying, look at me as one who seeks to live by, by modeling my life on Christ, shaping my life in Christ. Uh, that, that it's not just a uh, it, it's not just a, a model that he looks to, but it's, it's the example of, of constantly um, seeking to be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and 
He is all the way through this letter pointing to Christ. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, have this mind that was in you, that, in you that is first in Christ Jesus our Lord, who, who though he did not regard equality with God as something to be clung to, he, he made himself of no reputation, taking himself upon himself the form of a servant and becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. That, that Christ was the template for Paul's life. Not as the means of salvation, but as the outworking of that salvation. It was Thomas Akempis uh, who wrote uh, probably his most famous work, The Imitation of Christ, that many evangelicals have reached for uh, without realizing that he's got a fundamental flaw in his theology, that, that it's not our trying to imitate Christ that, that ultimately makes, gives us a place in his kingdom and a home in his heaven, but rather um, it's only through the grace of Christ that we are, that we are given life from above and, and, and we are embark upon that life of being transformed, as we saw this morning, from one degree of glory into another, and Christ is the template of what it looks like. So often we are inclined to think that the greatest threat to faith, uh, to, to the faith and health of the church is heresy when distorted doctrine creeps in, and, and it is indeed a, a very serious threat. Uh, but Paul makes it clear that the greatest threat to the church is actually idolatry. That's why he, he goes on to speak about, about those who profess to be Christians but who were enemies of the cross, that is, who were effectively denying the atonement that Christ secured on that cross. He speaks of their God being their own appetite in its many and varied forms. He speaks about their realm not being in heaven but this world. And therefore he speaks about their destiny and their glory as being destruction and shame. All of these people in the church, their hearts were set upon things beneath rather than things above where Christ is seated in glory. It's not just wrong patterns of belief that are, that are damaging to our life, but wrong patterns of behavior. When we allow our lives to be modeled on things that this world has to offer, rather than modeled on the Christ who is our Redeemer. Which brings us to the last thing, and that is the place to which we belong, verses 20 and 21. We might be forgiven for being more than a little bemused at Paul's choice of words um, in his flow of thought and, and in this passage uh, in particular, he, he, he goes on there in, in verses 20 and 21 to say this. He, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. To, to the average reader, we instinctively think, where does the notion of citizenship come in his logic and his train of thought? But when we stop and think about it, the connection is clear. The fact that these people have their minds set on earthly things mean that their horizons and their hopes are ultimately bound up with the things of this world, this present evil age, as he describes it to the Galatians. 
But over and against what Paul has been saying, he speaks about our citizenship is in heaven. It's it's true of any any nation. Citizenship matters. Um, Citizenship gives us a sense of identity, and it also gives us a sense of destiny. This is is who I am, and this is where I'm going. That's what citizenship impresses upon us in a very tangible way. And, And it was certainly language that resonated with these Roman citizens of this Roman colony in Philippi. Um, it was an illustration of a, an infinitely deeper spiritual reality. You see, these, these people of Philippi who were reading this letter, uh, they were Roman citizens. Uh, their citizenship was in the capital of the empire, hundreds of miles away, but they were living in the colony of Philippi. Uh, and, and even though Philippi was not Rome in terms of the benefits it offered, nevertheless, all the rights, all the privileges, all the benefits that were rooted in Rome were theirs by entitlement. And they enjoyed those benefits even so far away from where Rome was. And here's Paul speaking to these people as believers and said, our citizenship is actually in heaven. There's so many things that we tie ourselves up in knots in, uh, whether it be British ties with Europe or the border that separates Ireland into north and south or or, uh, where there's conflict in other parts of the world. And and, and we we get obsessed. If only we could resolve these political issues, life would be so much better. It wouldn't. We just exchange one set of problems for another set of problems. It's only when we get the ultimate thing right our everlasting citizenship, that it ultimately puts things in perspective and gives us hope. If if, if this is the best of all possible worlds, then it's not worth having. It's not worth having. Because the best of all possible worlds is not in this present evil age. It is in the age to come. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ... The Bible tells us that we have already entered into the age to come because we belong to the age to come. We have begun to taste of the powers of the age to come. We have a foretaste of the future, a present experience of the benefits of heaven. It's a reminder to us that there is only one who has the power to save, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day he will come, and for those who know him and love him, he says he will transform our lowly bodies that they might become like his glorious body by the power that enables him to transform, to subject all things to himself. Over the years... Um, we as a family have lived in all kinds of places more than we uh, would ever have chosen for ourselves just in the Lord's providence. We have been taken to all sorts of different parts of the world to to live and to serve. And, And it's raised all kinds of thoughts and emotions about where we belong and where our future lies. 
There was, there was a real sense in, in all the many years that we lived outside the province of Ulster that we looked back wistfully and thought, that's home. One day we'll get home. But even now that we are back in the province and delighted to be in so many ways, I find myself singing the words of that old chorus, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. That at the end of the day, I've got a home in glory land. And it outshines the sun. It's better than this emerald isle of ours. It's better than anything that this world could ever offer. And dear brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, then you are a citizen of that glorious kingdom. And you have a foretaste of that everlasting home. And may God strengthen us through that above all else. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the perspective that they give us, for the encouragement they provide, and most of all, for the way that they bring us to your Son, the one in whom we have salvation to the full. Grant, O Lord, that you would strengthen your people in this congregation with the love of Christ and his keeping grace, because these things we ask in his worthy name and for your glory. Amen.